The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. We are not a violent race, Captain. Just passionate about our cause. And that passion has led some to take up arms. Do you know where we can find Orta? I'm afraid not. Can you help us to locate him? I'm sorry, I don't wish to help you. Don't misunderstand. I, for one, believe the raid on the Federation outpost was poor judgment. You are innocent bystanders, and I cannot condone violence against those who are not our enemies. Then I, I don't understand why you're unwilling. Because you are innocent bystanders. You were innocent bystanders for decades. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 13th. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to the show here at CHRW Radio, 519-661-3600 if you want to call in and join in on our conversation today, or write us, just write, chrw at gmail.com with your comments, suggestions, or anything you might want to see discussed on the show. A little bit of a different show today. We're going to stick to a single theme. Uh, Just a couple days ago was, I believe, the sixth anniversary now of 9-11, and in those short six years, Canada has found itself in a very unpredictable place that six years ago, or six years and a few days ago, no one would ever have guessed. And that, of course, is in Afghanistan. I am very pleased this morning to be joined by my guest, and you may have heard this name before, Arthur Mayor, who, if that name sounds familiar to you, is uh, did was the same Arthur Mayor who ran for mayor in the last uh, municipal election here in the city of London. But he's not here to talk about politics today, at least not Canadian politics in the local sense. He's a sergeant in the Canadian Armed Forces. He works at 31 Brigade headquarters here in London. And he's just returned uh, from Afghanistan just a couple weeks ago where he has been uh, for the better part of the last year. Welcome to the show, Arthur. Good morning, Jim. Thanks for having me on. And uh, so you've been... uh, When did you actually get back from Afghanistan? I returned in uh, just towards the end of August. I've been there since February the 9th. And... uh, so it was a six-month tour in Kandahar province. And uh, it must seem pretty weird, like, you, you know, coming back to Canada. Is, is it like night and day to you, or, or is it, uh, what's the impression? How do you feel coming back from what to me was, sounds like an almost alien environment to us? Well, it is. Um, there's a lot of differences. The landscape, the terrain is much different. Kandahar province is uh, right in the foothills of the Hindu Kush Mountains. So from the base, you can see that. Uh, also from the base, you can see the the edge of the uh, Red Desert. So the terrain is uh, is very mountainous, is very dry, very little vegetation. Uh, the temperature, the weather is, is quite extreme compared to here. Uh, stepping off the I mean, plane yeah. when it was uh, plus 30, it actually seemed rather cool. So Coming back to here. Oh, yes. And, yeah, you were telling me, how what was the temperature when you left Afghanistan? Uh, the daytime temperature was in the 50s low 50s. And, and how do you take heat? Can you stand that stuff or is it, there's, how do you keep cool or you just don't even think about it? Well, Don't tell me it's a dry heat. <laughs> or well, is actually, it is a dry heat, <laughs> but um, you know, there's numerous things. Uh, obviously, you limit your physical activities during the day. Um, 
I worked in force protection on the base itself, so I spent a lot of my time basically indoors in an air-conditioned environment. And uh, gradually your body adapts too. So when you step outside and it's plus 50, you know, you don't just wilt immediately. It's something you, I, I, I know the experience. I spent a summer in Trinidad once, and that was the first time I ever understood what heat was because we don't feel that kind of heat up here at all. Now, when we first contacted each other talking about what we might discuss today, uh, you suggested in our off-air conversations that, you know, the Canadian media and American media, et cetera, has really emphasized most of the combat issues of the mission. And, you know, you can go over that grounds over and over again, but you're saying that's not exactly the main mission of what Canada is doing there. Well, it's uh, not really the main mission. It's just a portion of the mission. Uh, and this, this is the thing that kind of disturbs me when I read Canadian newspapers or look at uh, Canadian media about Afghanistan. It's, this whole debate is being, being conducted almost in a vacuum. I mean, there's whole areas that are virtually untouched. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult for Canadians to understand what's going on or to make any sort of informed decisions about where we should go or what we should do if they don't even hear about all these other things. Well, hopefully we can sort of create a sort of an image or a feel for Afghanistan after talking about it for about an hour today. You know, the, the, what we see here in Canada, I imagine when you're over there, do you get the Canadian newspapers? Do you, do you get an idea of what Canadians are seeing in the papers when you're over there? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, Canadian newspapers are brought to us, although... You know, because they have to be shipped over sure. through the supply chain, they're usually a bit out of date. So uh, you find out what's been going on in Afghanistan three weeks later. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> yeah, but right. there's also uh, uh, Canadian media feeds. Uh, you can go to the welfare trailer and access the Internet. So, and, of course, talking to your family at home or talking to friends at home, you find out what's being said over here. So, you, you, so you get the sense that, okay, they know a little bit about what's happening, but, you know, there's so much more that should be said and should be talked about. Well, that's interesting. I just um, was looking at a National Post uh, editorial by John Iveson just appeared on September 8th. And he sort of, uh, just to read the pertinent parts of it, he says here, the gloomy but prevailing view of Canada's combat mission in Afghanistan is that it will end when the current mandate runs its course in February 2009, at which point no other country will take our place in the line and Kandahar province will slide back into chaos, he thinks. The feeling from government sources in Ottawa is that Canada can can credibly argue the NATO alliance should be a division of labor and that 18 months from now it'll be time to trade its combat role for another that concentrates on institution building. And uh, Iveson goes on to say that if and when Canadian forces do redeploy from Kandahar, potential roles could include bolstering the rule of law. Uh, Canada has already helped train police, judges and prosecutors, as well as building correctional facilities or helping to manage the Afghan-Pakistan border crossing. Uh, just on base of what I read there, is, does that ring with you at all in any way, or does it sound accurate, or sort of what you see happening over there? Well, somewhere on the ground. <laughs> it's, it's accurate in the sense that um, if political events in Canada cause us to withdraw, then you know certain events could happen in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think the real problem is is People are trying to draw a sharp distinction between reconstruction work and security work. And in the current environment in Afghanistan, you know, there's really not that sort of hard and fast distinction. No. Um, our biggest our biggest uh, advantage in Afghanistan is right now we're uh, running the provincial reconstruction team in Kandahar. And without the security that the, uh, that the battle group can provide and the mobility that they provide so that 
the PRT can get around to all the different places, you know, these institutional rebuilding mm-hmm. and these uh, infrastructure rebuilding and all these projects that we're doing really can't take place. Or in the worst case, of course, you go in, you do something, and as soon as you leave, without leaving security in place, the Taliban will come and simply attempt to destroy what you've done. So it's more a case of these two things go together. They're parts of the whole. And it's not a case that, oh, okay, we can decide that we're going to do one thing but not the other thing. Right. I noticed in one of the uh, website links you directed me to, and I'll quote from there, it says, the Afghanistan deployment is not, nor has it ever been, a traditional peacekeeping mission. There are no ceasefire arrangements to enforce and no negotiated peace settlement to respect. Negotiation is not an option with insurgent groups who are not interested in the kind of peace that the Afghan people seek. That sort of speaks to that relationship you're talking about, that you have to have that uh, protection, I guess. Well, that's exactly true. Uh, The Taliban essentially are are interested in pure power. And... To what end? Isn't that... Well... not not to any sort of grand end like conquering the world or anything like that, but just simply the, the ability to, you know, be in a village, be in a province, dictate what everyone's going to do. Um, essentially, when they were in charge of Afghanistan, you know, the, the entire country was, uh, was being run by, you know, a rather singular vision of uh, Mullah Omar, mm-hmm. um, economic and developmental and every sort of thing was just basically geared to whatever ends that the Taliban wanted. Now what we're trying to do is uh, create a a modern country, consensual government, running by the rule of law, where the people of Afghanistan have their own choices of what they want to do, uh, what ends they want to achieve, what goals they want to seek. So... Now that's that's an interesting um, observation in and of itself in in that doesn't like even if you have a representative democracy in a country like that would it not then represent whatever the values of its citizens are and isn't that where a lot of the source of the problem is what if the citizens are just bent on destroying each other what kind of representative democracy can they possibly acquire out of that or is that not what you're hearing being right down there with the people or, or is there a whole different picture there than what we're seeing maybe what we need to do is is really kind of backtrack a bit and look at the the history of Afghanistan I think that's a good place to start let's let's create a bigger picture here yeah. about how the country is. You know, I just took a quick look, okay? I have a book that's about seven or eight years old. Just to, It just sort of gives an idea of uh, some of the main stats. Now, um, I guess Afghanistan it has a population around 20, 21 million. Does that sound about right? That's about correct, yeah. And uh, capital's Kabul. Um, has the highest point. Uh, Noshak, 24,000 some odd feet. Official languages, Pashto and Dari, is that correct? Yes, that's right. And uh, the main religion is Islam. Currency is the Afghani. Um, Now, interesting, uh, I mentioned this earlier, this uh, reference shows that the government is a single-party republic, whereas an older reference I looked at described it as a constitutional monarchy back around 1950. And, of course, the per capita GNP is estimated under U.S. $700. So, you know, when I just see those stats thrown at me, I see a very poor country um, that has obviously had a turbulent history. It's uh, gone from a supposed constitutional monarchy to a single-party republic. Maybe you could give us a little bit of background on how that sort of evolved, and we can do this in stages. <laughs> okay, well, the, uh, the constitutional monarchy uh, was the government of Afghanistan 
for uh, quite some time actually. Uh, the society started becoming uh, unstable and uh, you know a lot of uh, factional infighting took place during the 1970s. Uh, the Soviet Union essentially culminated things by taking advantage of that and invading in 1979 to support uh, the Afghan communists. And from there, of course, uh, was the infamous Afghan war where, you know, the United States and uh, almost the West supported the Mujahideen to fight against the Soviet Union. Uh, once the Soviets were rejected in 1989, uh, the Mujahideen started fighting amongst themselves, uh, essentially strongmen fighting for power. Now, just quickly, that period in the 70s, I noticed in one of my reference books that Afghan, Afghanistan had, quite, had a, suffered a serious famine around 71, 72, something like that. Yeah, there was a series of droughts, which... Uh, and essentially, the constitutional monarchy and the, the whole machinery of government was was really quite primitive, of course. Mm -hmm. And so they were not really able to respond to these famines. And that's essentially what triggered the factional infighting. Well, it's interesting because in uh, one of those uh, atlases I was showing, you know, state of the world kind of atlases, it described the government there as, as a substantially disintegrated authority, which almost to me, might be another word for anarchy or something like that. Is, would that describe it? Well, that, that describes was. the period of, yeah. uh, of the civil wars mm -hmm. in the uh, early 1990s. Now, the Taliban are actually a post-Soviet uh, um, phenomena. Uh, essentially, what was happening was the strong men were fighting each other to try and you know, become the power of Afghanistan. And the, uh, the local people, the villagers, the city people, the civilians as fewer, Basically, we're getting a little sick of uh, all this infighting, uh, this constant uh, struggle for power. Uh, the Taliban essentially arose as another force that claimed that they would uh, stop the fighting, they would impose order and, and peace, and that's basically where they started getting their support from. You know, people, villagers looking for some quiet, for some security, and end to the fighting. And did they succeed in any regard at all, at any level? Well, the Taliban succeeded in ending the fighting simply because, by this point, most of the Mujahideen groups had fought themselves to exhaustion, and the Taliban, as the, as the strongest and most powerful of the militias, you know, rolled over them until eventually they controlled most of Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the people suddenly realized that maybe they picked the wrong saviors because the Taliban imposed a very draconian rule, a very, uh, very rigid and very... Uh, an orthodox version of Islam mm -hmm. on all the people of Afghanistan. And uh, basically, society was was pretty much frozen. You know, the Taliban uh, closed, but a few schools were remaining. Um, development, industry, all the sort of things that we take for granted were simply ignored by the Taliban. The Taliban... Did, did Afghanistan ever have any substantial industry? In all the references I saw, it, it was always in the almost the bottom of the heap of all the countries in the world in terms of any kind. Well, Af Afghanistan was a poor country, but uh, up until the uh, up until the seventies, they were self-sufficient in food. Uh, it was a rural economy, so obviously people weren't as wealthy as say an urbanized industrial economy in the West. But you know, it was a self-sufficient country. The people weren't obviously starving or. You know, it wasn't extreme poverty like you see in mm -hmm. some other parts of the world. Um, however, once the infrastructure was destroyed by a series of wars, once uh, the Taliban basically refused to uh, reconstitute the country, then things pretty much, you know, went from bad to worse. The uh, 
once the Taliban were ejected in 2001, uh, the new government basically is assembling the institutions of government again, uh, starting to rebuild the infrastructure. And I think that's the reason why it says it's a, uh, it's a one-party republic, because although Afghanistan is a republic, there's no sort of political parties or any of the sort of machinery of politics that we understand here in the West. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's evolving, and it'll probably take several years to come into fruition. The biggest problem, and this is something that everyone should realize when they talk about the reconstruction of Afghanistan and why things are taking so long, is school's been out for 30 years. You know, the Soviets took over, and school was reconstituted basically to teach children about socialism Mm -hmm. and to make them, you know... Radicals, basically. Well, not radicals, but so they would fit into the socialist vision, the Soviet vision of Afghanistan. Uh, During the Civil Wars, of course, strongmen were more interested in having riflemen than to have educated people, so school was essentially ignored. Under the Taliban regime, you know, whatever schools remained were closed, and the only schooling that was available was uh, was very limited, very restricted. Essentially, boys were uh, encouraged to memorize the Quran, and that was it. Now, religious education, you know, is an important part of the overall education of a person, but it doesn't prepare you for being a technician, you know, an engineer, a doctor, or any of any of the skill trades that people need to function in a, in a uh, more modern economy or mm-hmm. more modern society. So, you know, one of the great triumphs of ISAF is that we now have about between 6 and 7 million children in school. However, it's going to take at least a decade for them to graduate, and only then can they start taking post-secondary education, learning skilled trades, learning professions. Okay. Let's take a break just for a sec, and we'll come back into the more modern, what, what is happening more currently. And uh, we'll be back in a moment, just right after this. In an age when that technology should be able to clothe and feed all of them. They should live like this. I couldn't. And I wouldn't. Yeah, you may have heard about the little, uh, Codependent relationship America's having with Iraq right now. Yeah. There was something I never understood about the whole conflict from the very beginning. Something that confused me. How did our oil get underneath their sand? Welcome back. It's Just Right with Bob Metz and with Arthur Mayer, my guest today. 519-661-3600 if you'd like to call in and join us or ask a question. Um, Afghanistan is oil is not an issue there, is it? No, it isn't, and that's uh, that's another one of the maddening things is mm-hmm. to hear people conflate Afghanistan with with uh, the conflict in Iraq. In Iraq. I mean, virtually everything is different. ISAF is. A you multi- mean it's really not all about the oil? <laughs> well, for one thing, Afghanistan has very little oil. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe there's a few gas fields in northern Afghanistan, close to the uh, uh, Kazakhstan border, or someplace like that. Essentially, if you were to develop that, it would probably be enough for local consumption, but I don't think they'd ever become a uh, player in the world market. But the other thing is, you know, there's so, ma- there's so many differences, it's very difficult to begin. Uh, let's start with the fact that ISAF is a huge multinational um, alliance. There's something like 38 nations in ISAF. You know, obviously we have the United States, the United Kingdom, 
Canada and Australia as the sort of the, the big Anglosphere players. Mm-hmm. The Netherlands has a large contingent. Uh, NATO has uh, various contingents throughout. Uh, Eastern Europeans' Partnership for Peace nations have uh, have some contingents like Romania, Poland, uh, Bulgaria, uh, Slovenia, just some, some off the top of my head. And uh, the role of ISAF is to assist the government, the currently existing government of Afghanistan, to maintain the security and to assist in redevelopment. So ISAF has a lot of pr- different projects besides, you know, the military security aspect. Um, one of the interesting things I found was uh, reforestation is actually one of the projects of ISAF. Uh, Afghanistan has something like 3% tree coverage before the start of the Civil War period mm-hmm. uh, due to infrastructure degradation, the fact that people were just uh, cutting down trees for f- firewood and stuff, and a series of droughts. They're down to almost 1%. So, you know, you consider ISAF is doing things like reforestation, rebuilding schools, rebuilding roads, uh, electrical generation, irrigation. And the military security aspect is simply to make sure that these things can actually be carried out without you know, being compromised, without being delayed, and without being destroyed. So clearly, yeah. if we were to pull out all of a sudden, that would undo the investment, wouldn't it? Well, certainly. Um, like I said, a lot of the stuff isn't complete. I mean, it takes sure. a long time to do these things. Uh, the Afghan people themselves, you know, they're starting on these projects, but they don't have the skilled and trained people to actually, you know, keep them going. Uh, it's kind of like if you build a road and then you don't have uh, engineers to, to maintain the road, you don't have people to, you know, look at the road after storms or mm-hmm. you know, even just your daily maintenance after severe weather, the road's eventually going to crumble away. So you build a road, and we don't have civil engineers in Afghanistan to maintain that road after we're gone. You know, pretty soon the road's going to disintegrate, and then it's not going to be any use to anyone. So, so everything really depends upon establishing a functional government that can create an environment in which basically knowledge and science and technology can flourish. Isn't that really, would that be a way of describing what the reconstruction's about in a way? Yeah, and, uh, you know, the government institutions... See, this is another thing. We concentrate so much on the military aspect, mm-hmm. but uh, within Canada's contingent in Kandahar, for example, uh, we have uh, some RCMP police officers, and I believe one officer from the Charlton Police Force, who are there to train the, uh, the local police. Uh, there was a contingent from Corrections Canada who were training with me in Canada when we were preparing to go. Their job was to go over and to help the Kandahar City Prison, you know, train the administration, train the guards, and show them more efficient ways of running the prison. Uh, the DFAT, the, uh, sorry, or, mm-hmm. sorry, C- CIDA, right. are, uh, are there, they're supplying money for the PRT to do a lot of these projects. So there's a lot of representation by other government agencies. So it's not just the soldiers alone. We're just... Now, know. the CIDA, that's the Canadian International Development Agency. That's correct. Now, uh, According to what I found here, we've already uh, Canada is among the top donors supporting reconstruction and development in Afghanistan. Has committed over 1.2 billion dollars in aid over a 10-year period ending in 2011. And I know 1.2 billion dollars sounds like a lot of money, but if you stretch it over 10 years, it's about what 100 million a year plus a little bit. Um, is this 
Is it? Do you think it's being effective, or is there progress being made? Because that's certainly nothing that we really hear over here on any regular basis. We just hear about casualties, and then every time a casualty comes back, it's uh, you know everyone goes into mourning, and everybody wants to get out of there. They don't know why they're there, what we're doing there, and uh, imagine it has to be frustrating for a lot of the military over there. Well, it is. Now, to give you. Uh to give you one of the reasons why we may not hear about it, a lot of this is uh, because Afghanistan is an undeveloped economy. You know, you can't just pour huge amounts of money in there. All you do is trigger inflation and you know cause a lot of misery. The other thing, like I said, is there's not that many trained and educated people in Afghanistan as a whole to uh, run a lot of projects. You know, you can show up and do projects that require manual labor, and it's easy to find lots of manual laborers. But if you want to do something that's fairly advanced, it's very difficult to find a civil engineer, for mm-hmm. example. So our projects are geared at the village level. And, uh, you know, basically what we try and do is uh, support community councils, if you if you will, uh, have sures with the, uh, with the local village headmen, find out what they need, and supply, you know, some stuff so they can do a lot of these projects themselves. Uh, one of the biggest things that, is really needed is simply to reclaim uh, agricultural f- infrastructure. So if the headman wants to do that, it's quite simple for us to show up with picks and shovels and uh, a little bit of cash to pay the local young men to go out and labor in the fields, you know, reclaim the uh, silted up irrigation ditches and get the field back in production. Now, it's not very dramatic. It's not very, you know, exciting in the in the media sense, perhaps, mm-hmm. but it has a huge impact on the village and it's it's one of the most effective projects that's out there. Similarly, building a school. You know, we're not building a huge university like Western where we're sitting here. We're just building, uh, you know, village schools, village medical clinics, and doing things like that. You know, I'm reminded of, of that uh, proverb, you know, give a man a fish and feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. Well, that's exactly right. And, and uh, one, just, I, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but just uh-huh. to, you know, people... People in Canada do want to help, but sometimes um, when they do things like they send us buckets of, uh, you know, school supplies or clothing and stuff, it's wonderful from a sort of an immediate impact thing. But it would be a lot better. What we try to do is we go and we try and find local Afghan businesses and, and sources for these things. You know, to, if we're to help spur the local economy and get well, it started exactly. as well. All right. So we build a school and then we look around and, okay, is there an Afghan carpenter who can build the desks? Is there a paper merchant who can supply school books for the children? Um, all those little things, and they have much more impact for the uh, now, now how overall is, mission. Who coordinates that? Is it's not just the Canadian military doing this, right? It has to be some major effort. Is it the Afghanistan government itself that is somehow well, the government of Afghanistan, of structure, course, or does it even really exist in the sense of the word that we think? The government of Afghanistan, you know, is responsible overall for the for the nation. Uh, they have things that they want to get done. But like I said, their institutions are are just brand new. Their institutions don't have a lot of people to operate them. So in some senses... Are they not seen as a government that was more or less imposed by the West after 9-11 kind of thing? Or is not is no, that not... Not the, at all. Not at all. We uh, we drove out the Taliban. Okay, U.S. military power drove out right. the Taliban. But um, the whole process of creating the Afghan government you know, right from day one, involved the people of Afghanistan. Um, the loyal jury was called. 
uh, candidates were called up from the jurgas. People were deciding, you know, who they wanted to represent them in the in the Kabul government. Mm-hmm. But uh, just because you have a council or a, a, a jurga or whatever, you know, you still need the mechanics of government. You still need bureaucracy. You still need, you know, trained policemen. You still need judges. You still need all the different things so that the writ of the government actually runs throughout the country. And that's the part that's being built. That's the part that's being developed. So in the interim, that's where ISAF is coming in. Now, well, lo- one of the things a lot of people don't understand is that this is actually a United Nations mission. Right. So, you know, this this is the part that always boggles me. People who are telling us, oh, we should withdraw, and yet in the second breath they say, we should be supporting the United Nations. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we already are. This is a this UN is the way you mission. Do it. Yeah. The UN basically subcontracted ISAF as the most capable group of people to actually go out and do this mission. And the other thing, which you actually mentioned, uh, the year 2011, Canada signed the Afghan Compact with 60 other nations. Mm-hmm. So um, we're committed until 2011. Uh, like we discussed earlier, it's going to be extremely difficult in the short term to separate the security from the redevelopment mission. So to to try and arbitrarily say, well, in you know 2009 or 2010 or today or any other time that we're going to withdraw the combat troops, you know, you're basically taking a unified whole and breaking it into into uh, pieces. Okay, I, I want to pick up on that point just after this next break because, you know, Afghanistan is stuck right in there between two what we might consider very volatile nations, Iran on the one side and Pakistan on the other. And we'll pick up from your point just on the other side of this. We'll be back in a couple seconds. Even though this country was voted the best country in the world to live in by over 600... You'll have to wait for them. (laughs) Was voted the best country in the world by over 600 war criminals. I'm not here to debate Federation policy with you, but I can offer you assistance. Simply because of one terrorist attack? Stop talking and listen. We've had our problems with the Cardassians, too. But now that we have a treaty, we're in a position to help. Mr. Data, see that the replicators provide a blanket for every man, woman, and child before nightfall. Aye, sir. Mr. Wolf, determine what these people may have in the way of emergency needs and provide for them. Yes, sir. Thank you. Return to your ship. I will contact you when I have any information that might be of assistance to you. Ensign? You were helpful. The blankets were helpful. Nothing I said mattered. And I think that point almost speaks to a little bit about what we're doing over there. It's it's a symbiotic relationship between the military uh, combat role and the reconstruction role. But that's got to be very difficult in in view of where the country is located, as we said before the break, between Iran and Pakistan, who are, um, we hear that's where a lot of the terrorism is being funded from, and they certainly 
would not have an interest in seeing Afghanistan reconstructed in the way uh, the West would like to see. Well, perhaps so, it's even, uh, let's look at it sort of from a grand strategic point of view. Afghanistan sits at the crossroads of a lot of different places. You know, Iran is in the West, Pakistan mm-hmm. is to the Southwest, India is to the Southeast, China is to the East. We have the stands like Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan to the North, and then Russia just slightly to the North of that. So Afghanistan is sitting on the border of three known nuclear powers, one wannabe nuclear power, Right. and just to the south of yet another nuclear power. So instability in Afghanistan could spill over and af- adversely affect any of these other countries. And we're talking about an area in the world where literally billions of people live. So Canada has a, has an interest just on that, just from that point of view alone. Well, let alone what happened on 9-11 and, and tracking that down to training grounds in Afghanistan. Was that... Yes, that was... Basically the truth of yes, the matter? Yes, it was. Um, but the idea is, you know, we want to basically snuff out those conditions, uh, prevent people like Osama bin Laden from uh, from establishing themselves, prevent terrorism from growing and spreading. I mean, in a way, it's like fighting a disease. You know, you have to track it down to the source, you have to, uh, have to reduce the infection, as it were, and then you have to... Uh, have to make the patient healthy again so that these that the infection doesn't reoccur. So with Afghanistan, you know, as time progresses, you know, obviously our role, our military role, can uh, be reduced. But I don't think you can just draw an arbitrary line in the sand in the sand and say it's going to be reduced on this particular day. Well, that's very. I think good. it's going to be more yeah. of a phasing out. I mean, even while it was there, the Afghan National Army was being trained by Canadian soldiers. Uh, the so-called OMLT, mm-hmm. uh, mentoring and liaison teams, okay. and uh, they started patrolling in uh, platoon size and eventually worked up to company size. You know, with Canadians, sort of co-patrols. We have, at the time I left, we had about two battalions of ANA soldiers in Kandahar. By the time this battle group leaves, we should have five battalions trained. Now, once again, this is the same sort of problem we have with all the other reconstruction. It's five battalions of uh, very good soldiers, you know, but they're all riflemen, basically. Okay. There's no mechanics to to uh, operate or fix heavy machinery like the labs that Canadians use, you know, the signalers, the information technology specialists. It's funny how, how so many of the poor countries in the world, not just Afghanistan, are poor uh, because of their lack of technology. They may have the labor, they may have the... Uh, even a willingness to want to change. But what's keeping the technology out of the country besides destroying it? Is there an ideology that's opposed to it? Or is, at least from the governing, you know, uh, or the terrorists or someone, you know, where where is that coming from and why are they not embracing technology far, far well, more in, readily? In Afghanistan as a whole, like I said, it's because of 30 years of no school. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's, that's literally, a lot, big gap to fill. Yeah, literally generations of people you know, had very limited educations. You know, if you showed up tomorrow morning with, you know, thousands of tractors, for example, the farmers would love that for the first six months or so, but as the tractors gradually failed because of mechanical faults or whatever, you know, there's literally only a handful of mechanics who'd be able to actually fix them. So for most farmers, it would be a complete waste. There'd be a tractor rusting away in the field while they're waiting for a mechanic to show up. So this is an example of the ultimate brain drain in a way. Uh, 
that there just isn't the knowledge to, to maintain the infrastructure, which I think is a problem, by the way, globally, you know, in terms of people not understanding the necessity of knowledge and of a constant advancement of science to keep the things that we already have, you know. I wouldn't be able to fix my television set, for heaven's sakes, if, <laughs> if it broke down. So who well, do you depend on for those things? Yeah, I don't think I could fix my TV either. <laughs> but, the, but the whole point is, you know, they're, they're setting off down that road right now. Mm -hmm. But we can't just abandon them because then they won't be able to f to follow it to the finish. So, so as, as years progress, Canada's Canadians should be standing with the Afghan people. You know, we should be helping them uh, in the short term. If I were to ask, security. If I were to ask the question, yeah, what, what, what is Canada's interest in it, if you're going to look at it from the Canadian point of view? Why should we be interested in helping Afghanistan? Well, there's, there's multiple, multiple reasons, multiple interests. Like I said, it's the grand strategic interest mm -hmm. because Afghanistan is at the crossroads of a very volatile part of right. the world. So instability in Afghanistan could potentially spill over and affect places like Pakistan, Iran, India, China, Russia. Uh, part of it, I think, is, uh, or should be, our own self-image. I mean, we're constantly telling people that, you know, we support the United Nations, we support humanitarian initiatives, we support human rights. Well, here we are doing the biggest... UN humanitarian and human rights initiative possibly in Canadian history and now I, I hear people saying well we should stop and it's just mind-boggling you know here's our stated values and people are actually saying that well no we shouldn't be doing this after all uh, there's humanitarian you know just humanitarianism people of Afghanistan have suffered for a long time is it possible some critics might be thinking well we're pouring billions into a foreign country that may in the end not work out for us anyway because of the circumstances around it and the countries around it, the, the accompanying war over in Iraq, all the spill out there. Apparently the Americans are talking about pulling out now. And would that create more destabilization in the area or is it necessary that... I mean, I, I, Afghanistan is just one piece in the puzzle. There's a huge conflict going on in the whole Mideast, as I'm constantly reminded by John Thompson of the McKenzie Institute. And he says they're all kind of related. Well, perhaps they are. Uh, I'm not competent to really right. really comment on that part. But um, if you do think of it as a puzzle, you know, having a stable and secure and somewhat prosperous Afghanistan, you know, will have spillover effects in the other parts of the Middle East and Central Asia. Like right now, we are setting off on a good course. Afghanistan, for example, has the fastest growing economy in Asia. Uh, I think the last... The last one I read was about 12% per year. Uh, so they're moving out of the poverty trap. They're moving uh, ahead. And and is this visible to people if they were to say if they were there 10 years ago and came back now, would they see a difference in in the infrastructure? In well, they would see a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, uh, Highway 4 passes by the Kandahar airfield and it runs from the Pakistan border to Kandahar City, and we could observe it, and it was just constantly full of traffic. Uh, Highway 1, which is the... See, that's an image I would never have of Afghanistan, just what you just said right there, uh, that there's even any sense of modernity or, you know, cars even driving around or anything like that. Whenever you see TV shows, you see this bleak desert, you know, some military action, and that's about it. And that's all the Canadians hear. Well, is, exactly. Is, there, that's, that's the is the media not there covering what's happening at your end of things, or do they not come around and... Well, it's it's hard to know just just where this is coming from. Um, obviously, like I said, 
you know, watching villagers clearing ditches so that they can get a uh, field going, you know, clearing the irrigation ditches. It doesn't really make exciting television. And so perhaps editors and uh, journalists simply look at that and pass it by. Whereas, uh, well, there are, there are though editors and writers who are supportive of our role there. And yet even they, I find, don't have a clear understanding of what we're actually accomplishing there and why we should be there. And they aren't really, you know, illustrating it to us, which you would think that they might make a greater effort to do to support their position in that sense. But I never see that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's, it's very unfortunate. Uh, it's very difficult to say why this is so. Um, like I said, for the, for the bulk of the mainstream media, you know, it's all about exciting pictures, exciting sound mm-hmm. bites. Um, just to give you an example, I was watching the news a couple of nights ago, and they were talking about Afghanistan. And I suddenly realized that the images they were showing were from Operation Medusa, which happened in the summer of 2006. But the reason they were showing that was because it was one of the largest combat operations the Canadian forces has been in since the Korean War. And yet, if you were to go and film the Canadian soldiers out in uh, Kenhar province now, you know, you just see routine patrols around uh, Shapiro and Gar or someplace like that. So, you know, the mindset of of editors is, you know, we want something exciting, we want to draw the viewers in, you know, we want to get get our ratings up, I guess is the best way to put it. So for them, it's easier to show stock footage from a combat operation of a year ago as opposed to showing what's happening today. And that's always the image that burns into the minds of everyone, too. That's always what you see when you think about Afghanistan. And actually, that's a good point, because you're talking about images. Um, We're kind of conditioned from, you know, watching movies and so on, that war is all about, you know, firefights, and it's about place names. You look at Canadian history, for example, we talk about, you know, the Plains of Abraham, we talk about Vimy Ridge, Ortona, um, the Medak Pocket, talk about all the battles that took place, but very little about the other other things that happened. Um, modern war is now more about uh, the human terrain as opposed to the physical terrain. Maybe it's a fear-driven thing that people would not, you know, I often wonder, would you want to be in a war? Would you want to be on the front line? You know, you can almost see people projecting their own fears onto the military and saying, no, I don't, wouldn't want to be in that. They wouldn't particularly fear a reconstruction effort or something like that. Where, where are the casualties happening? Are they far away from where you were stationed when you were there, or could it happen anywhere in the country? Well, it could happen anywhere. And uh, So when land, I was landmines and stuff are always a consideration, no matter where you are? Well, yes. Uh, the Soviets, for example, basically seeded the country with millions and millions of landmines, and demining is one of the other big tasks of ISAF. You know, just finding Soviet-era mines and Civil War-era mines and uh, you know, clearing the clearing the fields and the areas that have been uh, been mined. The uh, the Taliban, of course, used improvised explosive devices, the infamous IEDs. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they think they can make a point, they also you know show up in person and engage in battles. Now, this is something that um, people may not be aware of. The Taliban are not you know just a primitive bunch of people hiding out in the in the hills. They also have uh, access to information. I'm pretty sure that they, you know, maybe not directly in Kandahar province, but they have mm-hmm. access to the sure. internet. They can see what the what Western people are seeing and saying and and talking about in Afghanistan. And when they see defeatist uh, defeatist things in the press, 
then they try and play upon that. Um, Continuing to manipulate public opinion and push it the way they want it to go. Exactly. In a, in a military sense, there's no way the Taliban can defeat ISAF. You know, our soldiers are simply much better trained, much better supported. Uh, we have a force that, uh, you know, that that's that the Taliban can't beat in a straight one-on-one -on -one fight. Right. But if the Taliban can discourage our governments and force governments to withdraw our forces, then then they have a free hand to uh, to take down the reconstruction efforts and to uh, reimpose their rule. So it always comes down, doesn't it, to it's really a battle of ideas at the root of it. And well, that's exactly so. That's one of the reasons the Taliban, for example, are so ferocious when it comes to attacking schools. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, attacking schools, attacking teachers, uh, even, you know, this sounds pretty disgusting, but gunning down little girls as they go to and from, to and from school to discourage uh, children from going to school, discourage parents from sending their children you know, to school. You know, even the worst despot, you know, I have to think in my mind, what what can a person gain from that? What what value is there? Even if you wanted to subjugate a population, wouldn't you want to subjugate a population that could produce something? Where's the value in that if you can't even have an educated person? Uh, you know, it's it's. Um, I can understand they're wanting to destroy knowledge to make people dependent perhaps on them and because and they have been seen as a savior by some. And I know that part of the problem that the Western forces face is making the Taliban seem less attractive to the population, and that's got to be mostly an ideological thing, doesn't it? Well, actually, it's very easy to make the Taliban seem unattractive. Um, that's not the impression we get here, you know, because we keep hearing, oh, uh, even here in the West we're having people who are joining terrorist groups and things like that. And and the average person doesn't understand what would motivate a person to do well, truthfully, kind of I don't really understand what would motivate a person to do that either. But in terms of Afghanistan, mm -hmm. um, the local villagers in, uh, in the region around the Kandahar airfield where I was, you know, they would provide information to the ISAF forces about uh, Taliban activity. Uh, it was dangerous for them to do so directly because the Taliban could still roam around at night and, you know, use an assassination squad or whatever to, to try and eliminate people who were informing. But we did have, uh, and even some young people, very brave, come up to the front gate and say, you know, we've seen this or we've heard this. Uh, some of the other things that would happen was farmers would, uh, for example, find a rocket or, you know, cache of explosive material. And then in the middle of the night, they dig it up, they put it in a field so it would be visible from the road. Uh, local patrol would go by, they'd see it, and then, of course, the explosive uh, demolitions team would come and examine it and then destroy it. So, you know, the local farmers are actually on our side getting uh, getting information about the Taliban to us or taking the Taliban's uh, weapons and explosives away, putting them in a place where the ISAF forces can see them and destroy them. Uh, there's also, I've heard people t talk about how villagers, village headsmen, would actually call out the men, it's sort of like a local militia system in a way, to actually mm -hmm. prevent the Taliban from coming to the village or to uh, to protect the infrastructure that has, has been uh, created for them. So the people themselves, you know, they know what's, what's to be gained. The Taliban, you know, basically ruled by fear and intimidation. We can, we can show the mailed fist of military power, but we also show up with, you know, dentists, engineers, uh, teachers, 
And when the people look, they see it's quite clear there's a lot more to be gained for them. Certainly. This is not just a, a bunch of thugs coming over to beat us over the head and go home type of thing. Yeah, it's the difference, for example, between, uh, let's say, the Hells Angels coming and taking over a town or uh, or just staying with the local uh, local city hall. Right. Now, you know, in the whole reconstruction issue over there, there's the three areas that you were talking about, uh, security, governance, economic, and social development. Those are the areas that they're outside, of course, the combat issues. Um, yeah, you got to remember the, the Or security is part of the combat issue, yeah. isn't it? The security is to provide the, uh, the stable environment for those other things to take place. So governance we talked about, the government in Kabul is, uh, is working on creating its... Uh, you know, the, the arms of government, basically. Now, now, on the site that you directed me to, they referred to that specifically as the rule of law and of human rights. Are are those kind of ideas easy to uh, to introduce to a country like that? Is that something that meets resistance? Um, who actually teaches things like that? How is it done? Just through the school system? Is it done through the media? Um, I'm curious about how you do actually physically, you know, when you're down on the ground, uh, wage a battle for ideas. I mean, you have to want to make the people even willing to listen to you to begin with. Well, from our from our end of things, and once again, I'm, I'm speaking from my own personal experience and the people that I've spoken to, you know, we're working from the village level and working up. So reinforcing the, the authority of the, of the local headman, for example, you know, when we show up to a village, you know, we announce our presence, we ask this to speak to the headman, we hold a what's called a shura, which is like a, a sort of a town council meeting. Mm-hmm. The headman decides what's the most critical thing that he needs, and we attempt to provide those things, if at all possible. Um, and because Afghanistan is a rural society, and because they don't have sort of the widespread information infrastructure that we take for granted here, that's probably the very best way of doing things. Um, and one of the sites they talk about the... Uh, what we're doing. I'm just going to read from the sure. from the site directly so I get the numbers right. 437 community development councils, including 110 for women. So the councils are basically reinforcing the local village uh, the local village structures. And you know, we're perhaps used to like a single vast bureaucracy to try and do things. Mm-hmm. But in Afghanistan, that's, that's just not an efficient way of doing things. Um, having the local people take charge of their own lives, having local people deciding for themselves, having local people set their own goals. That's the bottom-up sort of aspect of Afghanistan. Now, in your experience with what you saw there, could you say, in a sense, do they value what we would call, say, freedom? Because, after all, if the major religion of the country is a form of Islam of some sort, is that almost not a state religion? Isn't that almost uh, contradictory to concepts of freedom and, and some of the things that are missing there? Well, not, not entirely. Um, the fact that most people are Islamic is more of a sort of a historical and cultural thing than anything else. Uh, Islam doesn't prohibit you from choosing to do a particular trade or listening to a radio show or going out and flying a kite if you think that's fine. The Taliban, on the other hand, did, and did so at the point of a gun. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the whole issue of Islam, I think, is almost like a red herring. The real thing is the people of Afghanistan... Is the government there considered, like, secular in in the sense we might regard it? 
Yeah, I mean, the official title is the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, mm -hmm. but in terms of you know how the government runs, you wouldn't see anything that's remarkably different from what you see right here in Canada, for example. Uh, you'd probably notice that things go a lot more slowly. Uh, there's not enough people to answer the phone. There's not enough clerks. There's not enough IT specialists and not enough trained policemen and all the other things. But they're working at it and they're trying. And they're trying for for a fairly sort of neutral, I guess is the best way of putting it, way of doing things. Uh, one of the other historical facts of Afghanistan, you know, it's been at the crossroads of many civilizations. It's been conquered many, many times, which, by the way, is another one of those uh, myths that we we just shake our heads at. Right. You know, the, the Afghans the, have never been conquered. Yeah. Kandahar is named after Alexander the Great, who conquered this place in, like, 331 B.C. And since then, it's been... You know, conquered by the Persians, has been conquered by the Mongols, uh, empires from India. You know, all kinds of different people have gone through there. Well, maybe that's what some people mean by not being conquered. It's been conquered so many times, no one actually really took root there and stayed there long enough to say that this is the type of civilization and society that Afghanistan will be. Yeah, well, because of because of all these uh, groups flowing through, mm -hmm. uh, depending on, on who you read, there could be up to 52 sort of ethnic and tribal groups in inside the uh, nation itself. And, um, you know, there's multiple languages. Pushto and Dari are the two main ones. But the the government of Afghanistan, you know, is, is trying to act as a secular government, so it's not going to be perceived as, you know, oh, this tribe or that tribe or that group is, uh, is taking over for everyone else. Now, so Canada's been there... How long has the country actually been there working on the ground? If 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 9/11 occurred just uh, um, six years ago, really? Our first troops we, arrived. This is another thing. Because this is a very short time period, really. You can even say that we've been there. Yeah, but the chronology the chronology is interesting too because uh, once again, it's it's really missing from the debates about what we're doing and why we should be there. Canada was first uh, committed to Afghanistan, and and our troops arrived in 2002. Uh, the battle group actually arrived in Kandahar, mm -hmm. and uh, they went into combat almost immediately in a place called the Shaikot Valley. So, you know, it's this, like you said, this has never been a traditional peacekeeping mission. It's always been a uh, a much more, I guess, peace enforcement or or support mission might be a m more appropriate term. I don't even know that the term peacekeeping is appropriate applied to other areas either, because it implies that you have to use force to keep the peace, which means something. Well, the traditional on. definition of peacekeeping yeah. suggests that the two sides or have an the agreement, sides have an agreement and, and yeah. they want to keep the peace, and where there's as the brokerage, as as it were. But that's not the case in Afghanistan. But we were there in 2002. Uh, in 2003, we moved to the capital of Kandahar. Mm -hmm. um, we pr did security uh, operations around Kandahar or, sorry, Kabul. And in late 2004 or early 2005, we went back to Kandahar. Uh, the then Defense Minister, Bill Graham, actually made a great point of going around and telling people that, yes, we're going back to Kandahar, yes, uh, the mission's going to be in a more difficult part of the country, and yes, we could possibly sustain casualties. So all these facts were, or at least should have been, well known for the longest time. And so when I look at the debate and I see people have sort of completely forgotten or ignored this, you know, it, it just tells me that this whole debate is being taken place in a sort of a sterile vacuum. You know, they're not looking at the larger historical context. They're not looking at 
okay, we've been there since 2002. We've been doing this reconstruction work pretty much since 2002. We've achieved a lot of very small scale, but very widespread successes. And because nation building is a huge, huge project, we're just on the road. We're just starting on the road to making a stable and secure Afghanistan. I mean, this is a project that's going to take decades. If you look back at the end of World War II, Germany and Imperial Japan were pretty much smashed. You know, the infrastructure was, was bombed yes. into rubble. Uh, the political institutions had been destroyed and discredited and so on. Germany's economic miracle really dates to about the mid-60s. You know, it took that long, basically, to rebuild Germany, so from 1945 to 1965. Yes. Japan. And there are still uh, American and Canadian military presences all around the world, even in Europe, everywhere. Uh, you know, I remember just after 9-11 saying that if, if we go over there, we're going over there for a long time. You can't just go in for a couple of years and go out. I don't think people understand the, the enormity of the task. Um, believe it or not, our time is running down really quickly. We're almost at the end of the show. I, we, we haven't got to half of this stuff. But if there was a major message you'd want to leave listeners with in terms of, uh, yes, the debate's going on over here all the time. That's perhaps why we're isolated in the sterile environment away from where the, quote, action, end quote, is. Um, what's the most important thing you think Canadians should be aware of when they're thinking of this issue, especially... I think we should look at it in Looking terms of our own history and our own, our own culture, as it were. Canadians historically have gone out and taken on really huge challenges. And I'm not just talking about military challenges. I mean, building the CPR was, was an almost impossible job, you know, based on the, the technology of that day and the climate of the country and the terrain that they had to go through. And politically, we've taken on huge challenges, too. Louis Saint Laurent was the Prime Minister who created the modern security environment with NATO and NORAD and worked very hard to build the modern United Nations. And, you know, militarily, of course, we've also been taken on giant challenges that uh, much larger and and uh, more established armies, you know, could not or would not do. So the thing is, you know, Canadians historically have taken on huge challenges and have succeeded. This is probably the biggest challenge that we're taking on in uh, the 21st century. I think we can succeed, and I think Canadians should look at this as something that this is worth doing, it's worth doing well, and we should stay the, stay the course and uh, and do the job. Well, certainly I, I agree to the extent that we've committed to it. I think it's something that we should do. And uh, I guess that's it. Arthur Mayor. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be York City, and that's, you know, that, every, you're worried about terrorism all the time. The other day my son says to me, Daddy, how come the bad men hate us so much? How come the bad men hate us? How sad is that? I actually, I actually got tears in my eyes, because he's 18. <laughs> what kind of a moron am I raising? I said, I don't know why they hate us, dummy. Why don't you read the paper and form your own opinions? But he's not gonna read the paper. Americans, let's face it, Americans have no idea what goes on in other countries. Americans don't know anything about other countries. We don't read the paper. Well, I don't... Wait a minute, don't, don't turn me into the Dixie Chicks up here with that. I'm saying we don't read the paper. I'm not saying, you know... 
We stink badly enough to deserve that ovation.